Father, we, um, we love the images presented to us in Holy Scripture of who you are to us, that you are a refuge and a rock, a shield, a fortress, that you are our steadfast love, our stronghold. We thank you, Father, that you are these things to us precisely because you laid down your life for us. And because of that, we can hold to every promise as being 100% true. Father, we pause also to pray um, for the parts in our world that are um, in pain and conflict and where death is just abounding. We think of the region of Ukraine and Russia and Poland, and we pray for a cessation of conflict there. We know, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you're doing a work even in that. And so we pause especially to pray for our brothers and sisters over there. We pray for preservation. We pray for faith. We pray for hope. We pray that they would see this as an opportunity to let their light shine in darkness, that you would provide both resources and strength to show hospitality to those who are fleeing the Ukraine, that your name might, in the midst of this adversity, be made much of. So we pray for them, Lord, we pray for your church here, that we would remain true to your word, true to your gospel, that we would love Christ more than anything of this world, and that we, we, we would be willing to invest our lives showing him to others in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way that we treat each other. I pray that you would take this time that we have to gather around your word, which your church has done for thousands of years, and just to hear your voice speak um, the word that we need to hear, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm uh, going to start on a bit of a positive note. Maybe this isn't a positive note, um, but we're kind of going to go dark and then light again in terms of the shape of this message. But I'm just going to tell you that what I'm about to say is probably a surrender of my man card, okay? I don't even know if you can say man card anymore without offending somebody, but I'm just going to go ahead and, and do a mild protest here and just say man card. I'm, so anyway, in the spirit of true transparency, I feel like I need to tell you that I have a new favorite romantic comedy, or the rom-com, if you're a person who's under 50, just figure that out. Um, it's, it's not new, it's actually quite old. It was 2009, uh, starring Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. Anybody know what it is? The Proposal, right? Um, it used to be way back when, it used to be Sleepless in Seattle. I know, I'm giving up another man card. Um, but no, I've, I've, and it's, it's that kind of embarrassing to say, I've probably seen it 10, 15 times over the, since it came out. Um, and I know Adam's going to have a field day with this because, uh, you know, I'm surrendering my man card. Um, but I will tell you this, and this is where I'm moving to uh, the point. My favorite character in that romantic comedy is, is not Ryan Reynolds or Sandra Bullock, both of whom I love to watch in film. Uh, you know who it is? Uh, Betty White, right? <laughs> So spunky, so full of pizzazz and sass, and, and, you know, she looks the same in that show as she did, like, when she was 60. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but it almost felt like Betty White was going to live on forever. I mean, when she did that, she was 87 years old. 87 years old and acting with that kind of uh, mental sharpness. Just an amazing woman, amazing, venerable actress. Um, and like I said, I, I think some of us thought she was going to live on forever, like the Queen of England or like Billy Graham. It's just, they just keep going. They take a licking, keep on ticking and all that stuff. And, and of course, sadly enough, you know, 17 days before her 100th birthday, 
December 31st, 2021, just three months ago, 17 days shy of her 100th birthday, she breathed her last. Someone that we kind of thought would just continue on passed away. Now, I don't know why it is, but it's really easy to think of death in the abstract, right? Like if I was to ask you, who here believes they're going to die? Let me just do that. Who believes you're going to die? All of you, 100%. You believe that. Follow-up question. How many people, how many of you live differently today because that's a core belief? And how do you live differently knowing that I am going to die? Not in an abstract sense, but in a very, very real and vital sense. Like, I only have so many days left. So the wisdom of Moses from Psalm 90, he prayed this. He said, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The first part leads to the second part. Teach us to number our days. In other words, teach me about my mortality so that the purpose of, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom requires you to come face to face with your mortality. Now, when he says, you know, teach us to number our days, I don't think he's being literal, of course, because most of us aren't given that information. And thankfully so. I would not want to know the date of my death. I would come apart. I'd be a wreck. So it's good. It's a, it's, a, it's a redemptive, loving ignorance that God keeps us in by not giving us a date. And Moses, by the way, lived to 120. He lived well beyond, you know, Betty White. Um, people probably felt like Moses was going to continue on forever, but he too breathed his last. I think what he means is like we have to constantly keep in mind the finitude of our lifespan. That at any point in life, you could wake up tomorrow, a tree could fall on you while you're going down the, uh, the highway and it would end. To recognize that each day lived is each day spent, and it's not, you're not going to get it back. And it's only in the knowledge of that that we can learn to live wisely. Like, the knowledge of death should shape how we live now. And Psalm 49 is a psalm much like that one. It's, it's intended to give us wisdom, and by pointing us in the direction of our mortality. Now, last week, we looked at a very important set of verses which taught us that no man can ransom the life of another to, um, to prolong life or that a person should live forever. That is to say, if I may spiritualize this, there's no amount of praying the rosary, there's no amount of church attendance, and there's no amount of cash that can extend your life. The cost is too high owed to God for you to pay for more life, period. In the verses we look at this morning, verses 10 through 14, He's going to bring us again um, face to face with the realities of death in different ways, in vivid ways. Now, um, <laughs> you might think, wow, this is, uh, this is once again kind of going dark, Dan. Um, well, here's the thing. We're two weeks from Easter. Just, what, a week and five days from Good Friday. We can't begin to understand what happened on that critical event of Good Friday and Easter unless we come face to face and unless we come to grips with death, the certainty of it, only then will we understand the enormity of the cross. So we go dark so that we can see the light, you see? And so we understand how big and wide and high and deep is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a great and wonderful purpose, and as I said, I'm going to end on a positive note. So let's move forward in these verses in three ways. 
One, I just want to talk about the irrefutable facts of death, part one. Then I'm going to talk about final death, and in particular, the result of arrogant disbelief. And then we're going to end on a, a note of victory, a victory of, of life. So, like I said, dark than light. The first part, the irrefutable facts of death. Verse 10, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Stop there, verse 10. This tells us that death is all-inclusive and it is indiscriminate or impartial. The wise die, the fool dies, and the stupid alike must perish. It's interesting, the Bible would say that the stupid alike perish. There are stupid people. <laughs> I mean, that's what the implication. Some people would say, well, that's judgmental. So it just said, stupid people. You think about this for a moment. The people who tend to get, get off well in life to establish a, a level of success oftentimes are people who are wiser than others. They might be wise in their investments. They may be wise in self-control and able to save so that they can have a good retirement. They might be good with wisdom and technology or business, a business mind. That is, wise people tend to do well in life, right? Think of somebody who's launched a Tesla into space. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge success, I suppose, <laughs> launching a Tesla into space. They say it just passed Mars, by the way. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, okay, I hope you do. It, it launched a Tesla into space. That's a big waste of money. But I just read, read this morning that um, they say if the Earth tarries another million years, it actually might crash land back here. <laughs> well, it once seemed like wisdom might be folly a million years from now. I don't know. But bottom line, the wise in this world that use that wisdom for success and the stupid have the same end, all-inclusive, indiscriminate. Second, this is just the layers, the facts, irrefutable facts. Uh, he turns his attention to real estate. It's interesting, we call it real estate because of anything you can own, it's the most real thing you can own. It'll still be valuable. Real estate. He says here in verse 11, he says, their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own name. So the picture is, again, focusing primarily on people who are successful and wealthy, is they have lands that, they've been, that, that have been named after them. You know, think Rockefeller. Think William Wrigley and Wrigley Field. Like there are lands and buildings these, to these days that commemorate people. That's, that's what they're saying. They're, they own property. They own real estate. But you don't get to keep it. But you get to keep a little tiny plot. Just to digress for a second. You know, when you first buy a home as a young couple or as a single person, oftentimes you don't have the money to buy a big house, so you buy a small house or what they used to call, and maybe they still call it this way, it's a... Starter home. Yeah, see, you guys anticipate. Finish my sentences. It's a starter home. But then as time goes on, as you maybe get promoted, as wealth increases, uh, as kids come along, and your two-bedroom, one-bath house isn't able to 
take care of the 12 kids you just had. You realize, well, now we need to transition from our starter home to our forever home, right? I don't know when that was coined, but the forever home. Like, we're going to find this house. It's like a big light shining on it. It's like, that's our forever home. Ah, that's where we'll be. Now, I will tell you, there are people who feel like a forever home is forever home. And case in point is one of my neighbors. I won't use his name. Um, had the largest... Um, footprint of property in our whole neighborhood. Um, and in 2020, a name that, uh, a year that should not be named, in 2020, um, he told me, and he was 93 years of age at the time, he said, Dan, I'm going to live a long time. I'm like, you're 93 years old and you use a scooter. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. And because um, we were talking about putting a sidewalk and different things in. And, and he's like, I'll tell you what, you just move the fence line. I don't care. We'll just. And he said, and this is, I think, almost an exact quote. He says, this land isn't getting rid of me anytime soon. He was as ornery as the day is long. In fall of 2020, he breathed his last. And his body was put in an urn and placed in Sacramento Valley National Cemetery where he has a little tiny plot, that is his forever home. That's what it says. The forever home is your grave. Now, again, you're like, this sounds hopeless. I'm getting there. Third, he goes on to declare to us that man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is a rather humiliating statement. And again, he's just like layering on what death means, right? It's all-inclusive. It's impartial. It's your forever home. And now he says, basically, you share the same fate as a dragonfly, as a beast of the field. So the wealthy man, along with the weasel, same end, the king, the, pick another one with a K, kangaroo, have the same fate. Next time you look at a, at a house fly that's been beaten against your window trying to get out and finally turns over dead, take a moment to remember that though its lifespan is significantly less than yours, you share the same fate. Dan and a house fly. And, and the part that's supposed to be part of the humiliation. Man in all of his pomp, pompous, thinking you're all that, as good as sliced pastrami, You've made yourself the hero of your story, and you've acquired wealth and fame, and guess what? You, dragonfly, fly, you in the same way? You say, that's sobering. It is sobering. Very sobering. But that's life in this world. That's life in a world under a curse. And should, again, feeling the weight of that, should send us looking somewhere else for an answer. That's the reality. These are indisputable facts of death. Just look around, and you'll see it everywhere. He transitions from death in general, although there is a slight theme of, I think, arrogant trust and wealth in these verses. These really apply to all humanity. In the second part, beginning in verse 13, he switches in particular, to what I think is final death. 
that is the final result of arrogant disbelief. Verse 13, I'm going to read 13 and 14. I'll come back to 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. In other words, pause and take a breath. Like, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Now the focus is on those who have foolish confidence. You back up in the song, you realize these are those who have trusted in their wealth. These are those who have trusted in the things of this world, the things that give humanity meaning and value and identity that aren't of God. And they're called, it's called foolish trust or foolish confidence. And then it finishes out there in verse 13 to say that, that those who follow after them, they approve of their boasts. So th these are boastful, arrogant people who trust in the things of this world. That's what's in view. Or someone who, for all practical purposes, doesn't believe that there's a God. You know, Psalm 14, verse 1, and this is echoed in a number of places, says that the fool believes in his heart there is no God. It doesn't mean they don't say with their lips that there's a God. The issue is they believe in their heart that really he doesn't exist. He's not going to, I'm not going to face him when I cross the, 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 the threshold of death. F foolish is the man who says there is no God. A fool, utter fool. Because the end of that path of arrogance that believes that I'm the hero of my own story and the center of my own life and the most important person on the planet is going to be a dark ending. Look at the picture. It's, it's kind of an interesting contrast to Psalm 23. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Sheol is the grave, the underworld. They're like sheep, so people who are pompous and arrogant and they have this foolish confidence and are boastful, guess what? They're really nothing more than sheep at the end of the day, just bad, just walking down the trail. I think Jesus would call this the broad road that leads to destruction. Paul would call this following after the course of this world. They look so great in this world, but the bottom line is they're just sheep, bleeding as they go down this path towards a dark place. And look at this. This is, a, again, very image-oriented. Death shall be their shepherd. A shepherd, by calling, is supposed to be one who preserves and protects and provides. Someone who cares. And yet, this shepherd, the final shepherd, shepherd of death, is not caring. It will not protect. It will not preserve. Says that the result is like sheep being herded towards the shepherd of death. And then when you get to the very end of these verses, you read that their form shall be consumed in Sheol, no more dwelling place, even the forever home, just kind of. That's how it ends. So, first two parts. We have looked at the undisputable, irrefutable facts of death. We've seen in this a path that leads like sheep into a shepherd of death, never to rise again. The finality 
of death without God, death without faith. But there is a happy place in these verses. Woven into these dark, vivid images of of death and the certainty of it, there's a single sentence. And by the way, verse 15 is going to start with two of the most wonderful two words in all of Scripture, and that is, but God. But God. That's next week. It says, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Now, this is the victory. Now, you might ask, well, who are the upright? And immediately in our minds, we think of people who are flawless or perfect. But that's not how the Bible views the upright. Abraham, for example, in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. He was flawed like you and I, but he trusted in the Lord. He trusted his words were true. He trusted his promises were too true. And despite his flaws, it says God counted him as righteous, that is, upright. The theme through the scripture is the just or the righteous shall live by their faith and by their trust, not their perfection. So anybody who has a real faith in Christ, that is a humble faith in Christ, and and faith and humility have to go together. Um, It's a recognition that I can't do what God can only do, and I'm looking to him to do and supply what I can't supply for myself. One of the most vivid pictures and stories of that in the whole of the Old Testament is when King Jehoshaphat, he's a man of power, a man of wealth. He looks at the Lord surrounded by enemies and says, Lord, in front of his people, leadership faux pas number one, never admit weakness. And yet he says, we don't know what to do, (laughs) but our eyes are on you. It's faith. Recognizing you, 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 you can't pay the ransom for death. You're not going to outlive death. Like Betty White, you are going to breathe your last unless the Lord comes back first. And in humble faith to look to God and say, I'm going to trust you. It's the upright shall rule over them. Now, this is the great reversal. Is that in this world, the people who get the headlines are those of power and position and wealth. But we're told by Jesus... In the kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who try to save their life by acquisition or achievement will lose their life, and those who lose their life for the sake of the kingdom and for Jesus get life. That here you have the arrogant and the boastful are being thrust into the grave to the shepherd of death, but the very ones of humble faith of which the psalmist is one, recognizes there will be exaltation. So the question is, like, for us, it's like, which would you rather be? I would rather be on the path of humble faith, knowing that at some point God will exalt his people, than to be exalted here by way of self-exaltation and be thrust to the ground, thrust to the grave to come. That's... But they will rule, I love love this, rule over them in the morning. When the sun comes up over the hills and the, the beams of light hit you and it's warm, 
When morning comes, I think translated in New Testament categories, when the dead rise in Christ, the sun will be shining. The humble in faith will be exalted. And those who have lived life for themselves will be thrust to the ground. Now, what, 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 what should we take away from this? This first, this exploration of death, but also this final victory. One of the things I think it should do is it should drive us. It should drive us to the good shepherd. You're not going to be able to avoid this. I can't avoid this. Nobody on planet Earth can avoid this. But there's one way, and only one way. That is, you run to Christ. David's great confession, Psalm 23, wasn't about the shepherd of death. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is the shepherd of my life. He's not leading me into darkness. He's going to make me lie down in green pastures. He is going to lead me beside still waters. He's going to refresh my soul and lead me in paths of righteousness. And even when I do pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid because he's with me. And I am assured because of his love for me and his faithfulness to his covenant that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. That's my forever home. Or Psalm 16, David again says, it's not this world is my, my portion or my cup. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, he is my chosen portion and my cup. He's what I want most because he's really all that matters in the end. He is the resurrection and the life. And the same one, the same Yahweh who's the shepherd, the same Yahweh who's the chosen portion and cup of Psalm 16 is the same one who made the heavens and the earth who put on our humanity, and he went into that grave. And he faced the shepherd of death. And he said, not my people. And he rose from the grave. So we don't have to stay there. We won't stay there. And even the moment that you pass from this life and you breathe your last breath, you enter into his presence. And someday your body will spring to life in newness of life, and he will take us into our forever home a creation made new. So which, there's two paths. You can either walk, walk the path of death or the path of life. There's either two shepherds, either the shepherd of death or the shepherd of life who gave his life for you because he loves you. And the question is, which one do you trust? And if you don't know the Lord this morning, you don't have a relationship with Christ, this is the time to, to decide which path am I, gonna, am I gonna follow and which am I gonna trust? Because it boils down to that, to trust. And the second just applicational point is just should remind us to be fruitful with the time we have. Like this life is transient. It's called a vapor. It's like the grass is here today and gone tomorrow. But that vapor of a life that we have right now, the remaining days we have on our little ticker, they matter. And they matter a lot. What you do in this life matters afterwards. And what are we doing with the time we have left? Moses would say, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom and spend our time well. So let me finish with this. I want you to think about this and try and 
you can use this when you get in a car and drive home and try and figure out how is death and the resurrection playing a part in the present life right now. Imagine, little imaginative role play here. Imagine your doctor tells you you have an aneurysm in your brain. You know, the little balloon from your vessel and he says, it, it, it's inoperable, we can't take it out, it, it, it's, it's gonna pop. And when it does, because it's so big, that you are gonna die. And you're like, well, how long do I have, doc? Because that's the next, how long do I have? And he says, you have anywhere from a week to six months. But chances are when it happens, it's gonna happen quick. That kind of, uh, all of a sudden now, the days, the numbers, have drastically diminished in what you know. How are you going to respond? Getting that kind of news kind of distills down, clarifies. It refines what's most important in life. It separates the wheat from the chaff when you know, I only have a little bit of time. Now, if you're a hedonist, that's someone who loves pleasure, pleasure is your God, well, you'll probably take that week to six months, and you'll drain your accounts, go on as many cruises as you can, eat as much food as you can, and much fine wine as you can, you'll party it up. Might as well eat, live, for tomorrow we die. That would be the distillation of a hedonist. I just need to experience the last remaining pleasures. Some person who's addicted to power or position may, when they realize I'm going to be losing it, and I've seen this to some extent, become frustrated bitter, and despair because they're losing what they love the most. It distills down what's most important to you when you realize your days are numbered. But if you're a Christian, what it should do is refine what is most important in life. And for the Christian heart, what is most important in life when you know you have a week to six months? I'll tell you the first thing I'd want to do the first thing I'd want to do is I'd want to get as close to Jesus as I can. By that, I mean I would want to be in a context where I'm hearing about truth like I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. I would want to know over and over again about forgiveness. I'd want to know over and over again about the home he's purchased for me and that he is my promised land. He's going to lead me into the promised land. I'd want to draw as close as I could to him because I know he's life. And then second, I'd want to gather around the people I love and the people I know who have loved Christ in this life they get really courageous about telling people about Jesus you ever notice that? telling doctors and nurses they don't care anymore they know their time's limited I don't have anything to lose so guess what? you need to know the solution of life I mean death is irrefutable but the resurrection of Jesus guarantees you life and life eternal in the presence of God I'd want to invest my life in people. And I think you would too. So if you had a week and, or to six months to live and you could distill down, I just want to spend time investing in my relationship with Jesus and I want to invest in the lives of other people, including those in my family. If you were to do that, why wouldn't you do it now? Why not distill it down in your mind now? This is the important things. This is the wheat versus the chaff and I'm going to invest in the wheat. This is what's important to me. I think that's what Moses had in mind when he said, teach us to number our days that we may grant, get a heart of wisdom and know how best to live now in light 
of what's coming. So how about you? Like when you distill it down, is the certainty of death and the resurrection to come, is, 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 it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it causing you to redefine and reprioritize? I hope so. I hope for all of us. Because there's a whole lot of chaff out there. We spend a lot of time and money on chaff. But the wheat, what's really important, that's what we need to invest our lives in. Amen? We thank you, Lord, for um, the sacrifice you made on the cross as our great shepherd. Thank you for staring down the grave, taking the sting yourself so we don't have to. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you or trust you. I just pray that you would open a way and allow them to trust you. And for those of us who do trust you, I pray that you would enable us to just refine and reprioritize life, knowing that our days are, in fact, numbered. And uh, we want to spend our time serving you the best that we possibly can, knowing that the best is yet to come. In Christ's name.